Thanks, Kristen. Good morning. Hello. We're going to see some symbolism in the passage today as we continue through Ruth. Jesus used a lot of symbolism. He used everyday objects to teach spiritual truths. He used whitewashed tombs, a door, vines, fig trees. People hear me okay? Sounds funny in my head. Okay. Anyway, he used everyday objects to teach spiritual truths. He talked about whitewashed tombs, a door, vines, fig tree, yeast, on and on. Some of the songs we sang today, he's light, etc. But there's one, there's one, all those are important to get right of what he was talking about, what the spiritual truth he was teaching. But there's one that we celebrate every week in communion as he talked about bread and he talked about wine and what that symbolizes, what spiritual truth he was teaching at the Last Supper. The bread symbolizes his body that would be fractured to make his people whole. He would be broken to make us whole. No matter how far short we have fallen of the glory of God, no matter how many mistakes we've made during our lives, no matter what we might think about ourselves or what other people think about us, no matter what our reputation might be, he gives us, in the end, his perfect character, his obedience. He makes us whole. The bread represents his body broken for us. The wine represents his blood that would be shed for the forgiveness of the sins of many. The wine represents his blood that was the purchase for our freedom. Purchased from sin that leads to death. Sin that plays itself out in a thousand different ways in our lives that we are captive to, the Bible says. He sets us free from captivity of sin that leads to death. First Peter 1 says, For you were ransomed, not with perishable things like silver or gold, but with the precious blood of Christ, like that of a lamb without spot or blemish. We're no longer slaves, but we are sons and daughters. And we will see that very clearly one day. It's important to get the bread and the wine right. We see symbolism in the passage today in, in Ruth as the story continues. We're getting close to the end of the story, and I'm going to recap a little bit. Not the whole story so far, but I'm going to recap just a little bit of, of last week. So Naomi, we saw last week, was acting like a brother or a father to Ruth as she planned to get a situation in which Ruth could propose marriage to Boaz, but Boaz was constantly around people, so she came up with this audacious plan. She told Ruth, go to the threshing floor, and after Boaz is done winnowing barley all day and celebrating at the end of the, of the harvest, after gleaning all for those months, wait until he's done, wait until he's done eating and drinking, and he lays down and he goes to sleep, and then walk up to the front of him, uncover his feet, lay down, and wait for what he tells you to do. Audacious plan. And Ruth follows it almost exactly. But instead of waiting for Boaz to tell her what to do, she speaks first. She removes any ambiguity, any uncertainty of what her motives are for being there in the middle of the night. She essentially says to Boaz, as we talked about last week, marry me. Marry me, Boaz. Be the redeemer that you can be, the kinsman redeemer, to continue the line of Naomi's deceased son and her deceased husband, Malon. And Boaz, we saw his response to that was 
excitement. He wants to marry Ruth. He sees her as a woman of noble character. He seems even surprised that she would ask him. He had already looked into what it would look like if they could get married, but he knew there was one person closer, closer kinsman that could be the redeemer. So instead of allowing his desire to marry her trump walking through the cultural expectations that he has to do and making sure that it's God's will for it to happen, he says, wait, lie down until the morning. If it's possible for him to redeem her, he would. And so they go to sleep. And that leads us to the passage today where we continue to talk about what real love looks like. We've seen how love in the life of Ruth is courageous and bold and humble and enduring. Today we see that love is both honoring and restoring. We're going to see how love is both honoring and restoring in, through symbolism, through a gift of grain, which leads me to the kind of launching pad for the message today, which is actually a question. And here's the question. Why the grain, Boaz? Here it comes. Why the grain? <laughs> there's, the, there's the launching pad. And here's, here's the answer to that. There's at least two reasons. First one is because he cared about Ruth's reputation. We see it in verses 14 to 15. Love is expressed here in his desire to honor her by protecting her reputation. We'll talk about that. The second reason for the grain is because he wanted to calm Naomi's fears. And we read about that in verses 16 through 17. He wanted to help restore Naomi's faith in their God. And he wanted to calm her fears to do so. And there's really a third reason for the grain as well, which we'll wait until the end to get to. <laughs> because if you notice, there's one more verse missing, verse 18. Third reason for the grain. So first reason why the grain Boaz, because he cared about Ruth's reputation. He wanted to honor her and protect her reputation. That's verses 14 to 15. I want to refresh your memory. So she lay at his feet until the morning, but arose before one could recognize another. And he said, let it not be known that the woman came to the threshing floor. And he said, and he said, bring the garment you are wearing and hold it out. So she held it out. And he measured out six measures of barley and put it on her. Then she went into the city. So they wake up. It's early. The sun's not out yet. It's still dark. And in order to protect Ruth's reputation, before she leaves, Boaz gives her lots of barley, six measures of barley. Even though, and this is important, neither of them did anything wrong that night. We talked about that last week. So it's, it's important to know this. They didn't do anything wrong. They didn't take the shortcut. And yet... He gives her this gift of grain to protect her reputation. What do we mean by that? It gives her a reasonable explanation as she walks back to Naomi, back to her house, of why she was out. Maybe she was buying, selling the grain, for example. Gives her um, a reasonable explanation. He's trying to protect her reputation. If she walks back with nothing in her hands, only smelling like perfume, the, the talk of the town, the gossip could start about what she was doing that night. And so he's, he's honoring her. I want to talk about reputation versus character for a second. What is reputation and what is character? Your reputation is what people say about you. It's who people think you are. While your character is who you really are. It's what you're like 
when you're around people and when you're not around people. It's who God says you are. And while your reputation, people may be correct about who they think you are, groups of people may be correct about who you are and the kind of person that you are, and sometimes they're not correct. Sometimes they're wrong. But your character, God always knows who you are. And so if we ask the question, what's more important, what people say about me, what my reputation is, or what God says about me and who I really am, my character, we would all say, right, your character is more important. And that's true. But scripture teaches, and we know this practical living, that your reputation does, it does matter. It is important in some ways. Proverbs 22 says, desire a good name more than great wealth. Like your reputation can matter. A couple practical ways, it could matter in your career. If you're not trusted, if you have a low reputation, uh, your job, your boss may not promote you, you may, you may not get a good reference to the next job that you want, etc. If you have a bad reputation, um, in the category of just relationships, one of the most important aspects of life, people may not trust you to talk about the real important things in their life, to develop deep, meaningful, lasting relationships where you can make an impact in people's lives. And so in, in those ways, reputation can certainly matter. And Boaz is well aware the reputation of Ruth at the time in Bethlehem was really high. He says of her, you're a woman of noble character, and she was. That was the consensus of the small town of Bethlehem. And the village usually does get it right, and they got it right about her. And he wanted to honor that. He wanted to protect that. Even if he wasn't the one that would end up marrying her, he wanted to make sure that she was still thought well of. And so, talking about ourselves for a minute, we can choose to care for people by honoring them and protecting their reputation. Let me give you a couple examples. How can you protect other people's reputation? One would be, one example would be, if you hear people talking poorly about somebody without any constructive plan or way of trying to deal with that or talking with them or doing something about it to help them, that's gossip and that doesn't help anybody. It just pushes somebody down. And if you hear that happening, you can either decide not to participate in it, walk away, or maybe even be bold and shut down the conversation. It's one way to protect people's reputation. Here's another one. Choosing to avoid the potentially dishonoring circumstances in the first place. So let me give you a couple examples of this. Choosing to protect the honor, reputation of somebody that you're with. So here's an example. Let's say you're dating somebody. You can choose to avoid the situation of getting back from a date or being with that person at three or four in the morning. Avoid, just honor the reputation of the person. Don't, don't even put them in the situation where people might come up with ideas of why they were out that late. I'll give an example um, of just attempt of this. Anna and I had a, had a curfew when we dated. Some of you might be like, <sighs> and I'm not gonna give you the number of like what that time was, because that could lead to some kind of legalism. Well, the pastor said this time, no. Um, but we had a time in mind. Did we always keep that time? No. Maybe a movie went 20 minutes more than that or whatever. We weren't perfect about it. I want to say that. But we were intentional about it. We had a time where we said we're not going to be alone together inside like that after this time. Just, just attempting to live above reproach in some of those ways. Avoiding the circumstance entirely. And to take that up a notch, 
I'm going to say something that's very common in our culture today, a decision to move in with the person that you're dating. So just deciding to remove even that circumstance in general by choosing not to live with your boyfriend or your girlfriend before marriage. Why? Because, well, you need a lot of grain, a lot of excuses and reasons of what you were not doing that night every single night. Not just one time. Every night. Excuses of why you were not being intimate. And people will assume whether you did or whether you didn't, people will assume you are physically or are being actively physically intimate. And I need to say this again. This is a very common decision to do in our culture. It's actually seen as the next level of commitment in a relationship. And here's something that's also true. We are not supposed to be just like the culture. We're called to be a city on a hill light to the world, salt, <laughs> like rather than only being impacted by the culture, we're called to be those who follow Christ, who impact the culture, who love the world, who love people, but refuse to be and to just go along with the decisions of the masses that change from, from age to age and culture to culture. So I can say this confidently, God does not call us to act like we're married before we are. And on top of that, if that's not enough, just simply of honoring Christ more, it's unwise if you want the relationship to last. I did a little research on this, and there's some statistics by Dr. Scott Stanley. He's a research professor at the University of Denver, an expert in family psychology, and he's published widely in peer-reviewed journals and scholarly books. And here's what he says about the topic of relationships in, in, in the topic of living together and how that helps or hinders the relationship for the long haul. He says, over 75% of young single adults include marriage as a significant life goal. Couples who move in together, however, actually decrease the possibility of creating a strong marriage. The divorce rate among those who live together before marriage is 50% higher than it is among couples who don't. When unmarried couples live together and get pregnant also, there's a, signif a significantly higher risk that the man will end the relationship within two years. Extensive research reveals that couples who live together undermine a strong bond by trying to keep their options open. So I've heard it described this way by people who've chosen to do that. They feel like it's a constant audition. <laughs> Before the commitment is made, acting acting out what a married life can look like, but before your word is given, before the commitment's given, it feels like there, it's just this constant audition. And I, ha I have to say, I know this statistics here and talking about being salt and light and maintaining reputation and, and wanting to have strong character, all of that's important. But the main reason we talk about this and the main reason that we would want to desire to live in a godly way in every aspect of our life, including romantically, is not just to maintain a good reputation until we die. That's an awful motivation to live, okay? It's not just to try to be, be moral and be obedient. It's because we want to honor and love Christ above all else. There it is. More than the world, more than anyone in our life, no matter what their expectation is or the world's is, no matter what others want, we want to honor 
Christ first. We want him above all. Whether other people see it that way or not, because here's some of the the irony here in this conversation. If you choose to set some boundaries and to not do the natural in our culture next step of living together before marriage, what might happen to your reputation, it actually might be, it might go down. You might be made fun of, you might be ridiculed, you might be mocked. And that's not a surprise. In fact, Jesus said, remember some of the words of Jesus on this? Just in general and following him, he says, on account of me, you're going to be ridiculed and scorned. Verbal persecution. Expect it. You don't live just according to the world. The world's going to wonder why, and at times they're going to throw stuff at you. Hopefully just metaphorically. (laughs) Jesus said, on account of me. So Boaz is attempting to honor Ruth by protecting her reputation. Though they were guiltless that night, he wanted to do that. He gives her six measures of barley, a reasonable explanation of why she was out, potentially selling it or working, and he does that. So why the grain, Boaz? Back to the question, why the grain? First reason, to honor Ruth, to protect her reputation. The second reason is this, because he wanted to calm Naomi's fears verses 16 through 17. He wanted to be part of Naomi's restoration, to lead her to the Lord, to restore her faith, to get rid of the bitterness. He wanted to calm her fears. So verses 16 through 17. And when she, Ruth, came to her mother-in-law, she, as in Naomi, said to her, how did you fare, my daughter? Then she, Ruth, told her all that the man had done for her, saying, these six, six measures of barley he gave to me. For he said to me, you must not go back empty-handed to your mother-in-law. So, we're going to talk about two things. One, Naomi being reminded of her lament. When she went back into Bethlehem, how she said, I came back empty. Reminding her of her lament. And then secondly, this attempt to restore her faith in, the, in their Lord. So what happens? Ruth gets back after that night, gets up early in the morning, goes back. Naomi's right there, awake. Are we surprised? Did she sleep at all that night? What happened? What's going on? Naomi's up, asks her, how did you fare, verse 16? Some of your translations may say, who are you? It's literally what it means, what it said here. It's who are you? It's the same thing Boaz said when he woke up at midnight and there's, behold, a woman at his feet. He says, who are you? Literally, she says, who are you? The same type of question, no matter how you translate it, she's trying to ask, what happened? How did you fare last night, Ruth? Who are you? As in, are you Ruth, the Moabite widow? (laughs) Or after what just happened, after the marriage proposal, are you the future Mrs. Boaz? Who are you? What happened? Naomi wants to know. Of course she wants to know. (laughs) She cares about her. She set up the plan. And so what happens? In Ruth's response, she tells her all that happened that night. She gives her all the details, right? Tells her all about it. And then she saves for last this sentence from Boaz in verse 17, right? Ruth tells Naomi, here's what he told me. You must not go back empty-handed to your mother-in-law. And he gives her the grain to bring back. So, remember, did Boaz know exactly what Naomi said when she walked into Bethlehem earlier? three or four months or so earlier when she says, I came, she's remembering what it was like when she left and she said, I left 
full, but I've come back empty? Does Boaz know that Naomi said that? Maybe. And maybe that's specifically why he uses those words. Or maybe he didn't know, and God is just using Boaz in this way to reach Naomi, to strengthen her faith, to encourage her. She said, I went back full, and the Lord has brought me back empty. Don't even call me Naomi. Don't call me pleasant is what Naomi means anymore. I don't feel that way. Nothing in my life looks that way. It seems like God doesn't think about me that way. Call me Mara, which means bitter, because that's my life. And that's what, what it looks like the rest of my life is going to be. Not a lot of hope for the future. Call me bitter. And so Boaz, and saying to Ruth, you're not going back empty-handed to your mother-in-law, Naomi's going to hear that and remember what she said. What does this teach us about God? (laughs) A few things. It teaches us that God hears our laments. He hears our cries. He knows. And he's working. He's acting. Have faith. It's not the end of your story. Have you been waiting a long time? Have you been crying out a long time? He knows. Wait, have faith, he hears us. Secondly, we learn something else. God may very well allow us to get empty. God works with his people the same way he did then as he does now, which means he may very well allow your life, not the person next to you, not the person you're thinking of in your family that could really use that, you. He may allow you to get empty empty, to get to the point where you never thought you would get, where life just seems bleak, where the temptation to give in to bitterness is very real. He may let you get there, not for the sake of leaving you there, but for the sake of filling you up. He doesn't leave us in the valley of the shadow of death. He's with us, and he brings life. He brings resurrection. Naomi is reminded of her lament. And then Boaz wants to help her, or the Lord, very much through Boaz, wants to help her restore her faith in the Lord. As we've been talking about, Naomi has been tested. Her life has gone from bad to worse. She lost her, both her sons and her husband. She, she feels like God has abandoned her. She's been crying out to him. She, what she wants is for God to come and fix it all. Isn't that what we want so often? When we cry out, we want God to do something. We just want him to show up. We just want him to fix it all. We just want it to be done, right? We're Americans. <laughs> we just want it done. 30 seconds, microwave it, fix it. But that's not often how he acts, is it? God usually doesn't show up all at once, but gradually. Gradually in the life of his people. I love this quote from Paul Miller's book, In a Loving Life. Listen to this. He says, we discover God in our stories. Usually by looking at the past, clarity develops over time. Naomi started to see God's hand in her story. We'd like God to be more obvious, but he stays hidden in the story. God's presence in the book of Ruth mirrors his presence in our lives. It's subtle. He doesn't leap out like he did with Moses in the plagues of Egypt. If God regularly showed himself like that, as he did at the Red Sea or the resurrection, there'd be no room for relationship. Dramatic self-disclosure doesn't allow for the much deeper and richer form of knowledge of God's presence that's acquired as we do life in relationship with other believers. By staying in the shadows, at the edge of the story, God creates the need for faith and thus intimacy. 
The hiddenness of God builds our faith muscles. It makes us work and think like Boaz and Ruth and Naomi. We become different because God is subtle. The result? A divine community is formed. Because God is not a cosmic robot, he's a lover. He draws us in, he woos us to himself. In fact, we simply can't handle in our current state the full vision of God. Everyone in the Bible who saw him was overwhelmed. Read Isaiah 6, Revelation 1. The full vision of God sucks the air out of the building. We can't breathe. Emily Dickinson captured how God reveals himself like this. Tell all the truth, but tell it slant. The truth must dazzle gradually, or every man be blind. See what he's saying? See what she's saying? We get to know God and ourselves, not in a moment, not in one event, but over our lifetime. He draws us in, slowly. I like some of the examples Miller gave in his book about how Jesus was intentional to do that. He didn't always jump out with the answer. He gave people time to think, to process, to learn. There's a lot of examples we could look at. One is in John 20. After the resurrection, Jesus deliberately hid himself. He wasn't ready yet to talk to or reveal himself to Peter and to John who came to the empty tomb, but he does reveal himself to Mary. But he doesn't do it right away either. He waits. And in her brief quest for Jesus... She emerges as a person, and Jesus steps out of the shadows with one word, Mary. In Luke 24, on the road to Emmaus, Jesus intentionally hides his identity from two of his disciples as they process, as they talk about the tragedy that had happened at the crucifixion, what they thought about God and what what happened and what they were going to do. He doesn't jump out with the answer. He doesn't give them what they were looking for in that moment. He waits. He lets them think and talk and process. It wasn't until later that night that he reveals himself by turning a meal of his disciples into another communion service. Jesus leaves space. And I know, speaking to the choir here, I understand it myself, when he leaves space, we might feel forgotten. We might feel alone. We might feel neglected. God doesn't hear. God doesn't understand. God will never come through. Those kinds of thoughts. We feel the space as rejection and being forgotten and alone, and we're tempted at least to believe that and to fall into those doubts, to to embrace bitterness. But that's not the intent. It's to grow our faith. We're not called to run away from the hard stuff. We don't see Ruth do it. She submits to God no matter what the circumstances she found herself in. And he calls us to do the same. Boaz, through the gift of grain, was telling Naomi, you're not empty. God won't leave you bitter. Calm your fears. Restore your faith. So, why the grain, Boaz? to honor Ruth by protecting her reputation, to calm Naomi's fears, to let her know that God won't leave her in her bitterness. It's not the end of her story. But if you notice, there's one verse left, verse 18. And there's one more reason for the grain. Verse 18 says, she replied, wait, my daughter, until you learn how the matter turns out. 
for the man will not rest, but will settle the matter today. Here's the third reason for the grain. (laughs) Boaz was committed to redeem Ruth, or to find out if he couldn't, who would. And he was committed that day to do so. The grain was a sign of that commitment. And Naomi was confident, not only that Boaz would do it, but that he would make it a priority that day. She trusted his word. And as I read that and thought about that, I just, I just took a step back and thought to myself, she trusted his word. At the end of our lives, if you can have even a couple people, a couple fingers up of people that you know, you trust their word, you're a lucky person. You're a fortunate person. Who are the people that you can trust when they say something, they mean it? I want to tell you one person that you know you can trust. Who am I going to say? Jesus, <laughs> right? In every service, man, I, we were praying this morning. May we not ever, Lord, protect us from becoming a church that's about anything less than him. Anything less. That's morality, that's a building, that's numbers, that's fill in the blank, any of it. It's no longer good news if we do that. It's about him. Who can you trust? You can trust him. Trust what he said about the bread and about the wine. What did he say about the bread? He said it represented his body that would be broken for us. No matter how far short we have fallen of God's glory, no matter how many times we've messed up in any area of our life, no matter how many times, no matter how many more times, he broke his body to make us whole. He gives us, credited to us, the New Testament says, his perfect obedience, his words, his works, all of it, ours, the character of Jesus is given to us. His body was broken. The wine symbolizes his blood that purchased our freedom. Freedom from what? Freedom from the sin that holds us captive, that plays itself out in a thousand different ways in our lives, that leads to death. He has set us free. He's purchased us to the sin that leads to death so that we no longer need to even fear death itself, the bread, the wine. No longer slaves, but sons and daughters. Naomi said, the man will not rest, but will settle the matter today. Jesus said after the Last Supper, during the Last Supper, truly I say to you, I will not drink of the fruit of the vine until that day when I drink it new in the kingdom of God. He's eager to finish what he started. I know a couple thousand years doesn't sound quick, (laughs) right? But God's timing in ours is very different. Luke 12 says, fear not, little flock, for it is your father's good pleasure to give you the kingdom. And he gave himself to do so. We know that only the infinite God can rescue us from our, the infinite price of our sin. But he has. We're redeemed by Jesus. Let's pray. Father, we spend a lot of time, I spend a lot of time thinking about, worrying about, what do people think about me? What do people say about me behind closed doors? 
What do people think? And God, while our reputation, it does matter in, in, in many ways in life. We want to have a good name, an honoring name. Lord, we also know at the end of the day, it's only your opinion that will matter. And we praise you and we thank you, God, that although we don't fully understand it or see it, we've been given your perfect character, a perfect life, that record given to us. May we see it. May we know it. Give us joy because that's, that's a fact. We're yours. You see us as perfectly right with you because of Jesus. Help us, God, to do the work to try to reflect you as best as we can trying to honor you, trying to honor one another while refusing to make the main goal of our lives any kind of morality or performance, but simply out of love, simply out of desire to be with you, to follow not the footsteps of the multitude and the masses of our culture, but your footsteps, the narrow way, the one door, that leads to life. And God, would you use us to calm the fears of one another, of people in our lives. Use us to restore the faith of those who have walked away or doubt you or don't believe in you. Would you use us to help them get on that narrow way that leads to life? Pray this in Jesus' name.